If you have ever had a chance to walk in a forest when the autumn colors are at their peak and the gentle rain makes them even brighter, then maybe you have been in awe. Or you stood at the precipice of the Grand Canyon and looked down the 4,000 feet to the Colorado River below. Then maybe you have been in awe. I appreciate Verlin Fosner being here. I want to start off with just some general questions, kind of get his view and what his idea of what awe is and how it works in his life. And then we're going to go a little deeper into some of the things that he's doing and what's happening around him and how I think that could be awe-inspiring to others. So Verlin, first give me a little bit of information about you, you know, maybe your promo here that you can give me about yourself and where you come from and what you're into. I am on my 38th year of uh, ministry, and uh, for the first 27 years, I suppose I would be recognized as a rather traditional pastor and in my denomination and wife and wife Melody, uh, married for that same amount of time, three kids, seven grandkids, the latest of which was just born here recently, so we're pretty charged about trips back and forth to Nashville. Oh, congrats. Um, to be with Everly. But um, so and then about uh, and we pastored this church here in Seattle since 1999. This last 10 years of ministry, however, the Lord has moved us over to a very interesting and a very different track and has opened up such tremendous influence for us and such tremendous doors. We just we, we really can't hardly believe it. Uh, our friends are retiring and ready to retire. And we have just finally hit uh, traction in ministry in ways <laughs> that uh, we never had seen before. So uh, we're not thinking or talking retirement at all. Uh, so that's just a, a little bit about our more recent soundbite. Even though we still pastor this church in Seattle, um, we're, we're actually doing an awful lot more than just what's happening right here in the city, even though what's happening here in the city is becoming quite profound, at, mm -hmm. least, at least for the history of the church this church, a 95-year-old church. So, Well, you know, you, you strike on something that is key to what this podcast is about, and that's the awe of God and the inspiration of God in our lives. And here it is. You've been pastoring and in the ministry for 38 years. You mentioned that, you know, friends were around the same age because we've met, and yeah. friends are retiring and everything. And yet when you said, we're just getting traction— and it's almost like a new life. I couldn't help but think like Psalm 40, where David says, you know, God, you've taken me and now you've put a new song inside of me to sing. Yeah. I, am I hearing that correctly? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we actually, uh, I suppose this would date back to about 22, 23 years ago. I went through a clinical burnout and I, uh, I was trying to be the kind of pastor that uh, that our denomination would be uh, proud of and live mm -hmm. up to that particular role. And after, you know, at that point, I don't know what that would have been in terms of the years of my, probably at the 18-year point, 17-year uh, point, we were, I, I, just, I just finally hit the wall. And uh, no matter what I had tried in ministry, however I had tried to be effective in reaching my towns and cities of the couple different churches that I had pastored by that point. 
um, it, it really threw me into a clinical burnout. And I found myself in the counselor's offices and all the kinds of stuff necessary to begin to understand some things. Um, and uh, in the middle of that burnout, mm-hmm. I actually had uh, a divine dream. I've only had two of them in my life that I know was God visiting me as I slept. In that dream, I was running in the light with all of my pastoral contemporaries, if you will. And uh, it's like we were all doing a, a marathon, had our shorts on, our running shoes, and and the gun goes off and we're running down the city streets and people are clapping as we're heading off on this marathon. And for whatever reason, I turned off onto a side street and just like that, it was night and there were no street lights on that uh, on that path. And um, as I was running, I fell into a huge construction pit that I didn't know was there. I didn't see it. Everything was dark. I was running. I could see my friends running through the buildings, as it were, as I would look a block down and they're on a lighted road, running happy and all that. And here I am. Suddenly I'm falling. I'm just free falling into this pit. And there was a bunch of rebar down at the bottom of the pit that mm. literally fractured my legs unbelievably. Mm. And, um, and I heard a, a voice from the sky saying, um, uh, I, I'm going to get glory from this. And the dream was over. And I woke up, and in this really weird kind of sense, I could feel my burnout ending. It, huh. was, it was this really interesting explanation. It was like I suddenly said, yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. I was running, I was doing, I was functioning in this pastoral role. And then I somehow I cut over on a path. I don't remember making a decision to do it, but I guess I did. But the truth is I'm laying here in a hole all busted up and I don't even hardly have the emotional energy to put to put a sermon together for Sunday. And it's all I can do to just keep functioning with my pastoral duties. Wow. um, So that was uh, that was the first of a dream that I felt the Lord invade my sleep and speak to me and give me a crystal clear understanding of what was going on with me. And yet there was such significant hope. Because uh, there was that, you know, uh, I'm, I, I am going to get glory out of this uh, message. And so I didn't have any definition of going forward, but uh, I definitely now understood that what had happened, the Lord was paying attention. And he had, a, he had a plan beyond this construction pit in the dark that I was laying in with my legs all busted. I could see them all twisted like the story of the crooked little man. You know, I looked at my legs and that's where they were. They were like, I'm never going to run normal on these things again. They're they're like shattered, both of them. And so. So you're shattered here. And, and truthfully, you could look at that as being hopeless, but God gave you an encouragement. So what, what happened from there? Well, I I woke up in better shape than I had gone to sleep. Let's put it that way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because first of all, there was clarity for the for the reality of what was going on in me. But secondly, uh, just the knowledge that the Lord was paying attention and that he had a plan out of this thing. In fact, he was way more in this than I realized. And mm-hmm. that this was a path to, to his glory, so to speak. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, for the next few weeks, I'm still going to the counselor, you know, still doing all the kinds of things and reading and i mean uh you know a uh, number of a number of authors have written so well 
uh, Dan Allender is one such that had written so profoundly on this. And I was just finding myself in a reading sense, hanging out with those that had really crashed and yet found God in the crash. So then I, uh, I was probably three or four weeks later when I had the second dream. These are the only two divine dreams I've, ne- I've ever had that interrupted my sleep and set a course for my life, if you will. Mm-hmm. But in this next dream, I picked up on the edge of the hole. I was now, I was on the same dark street, and, uh, but I wasn't laying in the bottom of the pit anymore. My legs were crooked as all get out. They, I'm an athlete, and I've always had a, a, a body to go along with that a fact that I played all the way through college and everything. And so looking down at legs that were that bent was really odd for me. And um, I turned around, and I took a step expecting it to hurt, but it didn't. And I took another step expecting it to hurt, but it didn't. Uh, So I started to walk a little faster, a little faster, a little faster, and I found that I could actually run on those legs, those stupid, busted, cracked up, all shattered legs. I could actually run on them. And in fact, before I got to the end of the block, I was running faster than I ever remembered running before. And yet my legs were completely the crooked old man legs, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm now looking down block by block, and I'm slowly starting to catch up with the, the, the ministers that I had gone to school with. And I'm and there they are. I can see them block by block. I am now, I've now caught up with the race. And, um, uh, and it, was, uh, it was just fascinating to me to watch. I was still in the dark, but I had complete confidence that I could now see in the dark, and I could run in the dark, and I was never going to be over in that other path but I was never going to be stopped again. And so when I woke up from that one, I, I mean, my, my burnout was officially over, even though I didn't have a practical sense on the earth of what my ministerial role was going to look like. Mm-hmm. But it sure was interesting when the phone rang and it was a church up in Seattle saying, uh, we think we need to talk to you. And it was not too far after that. And uh, I, I knew God was up to stuff at that point. And so Coming to Seattle was uh, was the awareness that I was going to be leading a church down a, on a darkened trail, but yet with full confidence and at full speed, and uh, and that uh, ultimately is what has played out. But that was a, a tremendous God interruption for us that has literally defined us and has has been accurate and carried us clear to this very day. That understanding understandings that were gained in those two dreams. Uh, Wow. Uh, I've had that kind of impact. Any um, insight that you might have for somebody who hasn't had a dream like that, but may feel the same way that you felt? Well, I suppose the dream thing is kind of a, a very personal, you know, thing as far as the way that my and God's relationship worked. And uh, I know that not a lot of people experience him that way, but I do have significant confidence that in some way or another, the Lord will get his message through that in every brokenness and in every really ugly wipeout chapter, uh, you know, the Lord has a, has a way out of that thing, though we humanly can't see it. Mm-hmm. The Lord will make a way where there is no way. Like that song we used to sing back in the eighties, you know? Yeah. Uh, and at some point in time, the Lord, I mean, the Lord wants us to know that he doesn't want us laying there in our despair. He wants us to know that he can be relied upon 
during those to walk us out of those broken chapters. Mm. Uh, and he's really good at his job that way. We need to have confidence <laughs> of how good at his job he really is. And yeah. so that would be my encouragement that, uh, that you know, laying in the pit, that's time to be listening for however the Lord's going to talk. Uh, he's He's got that to say to you, and it will start to hit some kind of very real traction in his time. Well, good example. And, you know, that kind of leads us to you, you talking about the door opening up there in Seattle. You know, I, I think... I think that just shows the continuation of probably what happened and you trusting the Lord out of those dreams uh, that he's there, he's working in your life. He wants to do something significant through you. So tell us more about what he's done since that point in time. Well, uh, when we got here, it it was a a traditional church that, uh, you know, had been, it was the first church of our denomination that had been planted in the city of Seattle and, and uh, Seattle is a relatively young city. I mean, it really is not very old compared to East Coast cities. And so the churches that are here, though we started back at the very beginning, that's why we're you know only 95 years old now. But, but it started off pretty normal, I guess you would say, um, traditional. It was a strong church, had always done well, uh, had always had the kind of people that had the resources and had the personality and the looks and the and the whatnot to just do well, always had done well. And it continued to do that for the first five or six years that we were there. So I, I almost forgot about the dreams because I was back functioning in this church and multiple services and a lot of momentum. Um, and uh, then it was as if the Lord just, or not the Lord, but somehow the lights got turned out uh, to where we actually just began to shrink. Our seniors hmm. were uh, dying off. It was kind of at that age. They had come in as young people, and now they're, they're, they're old and they're dying off. And every time one of them would die, the three or four family members that had been driving in to be with grandma and grandpa on Sunday and attend church and then go to their house for lunch, that, that whole beautiful little family vision that had been being lived out by so many of them, uh, it started to dissipate. So with every death, and we were we were averaging uh, a funeral about once every three weeks, a long period of time. And we weren't just losing that one. We were losing the three or four that were driving in to be with that one each Mm. time it was a death. And so, but what it really underscored for us is that our church was not effective at reaching our own city. We We had been doing well and just kind of keeping the already, already reached, if you will, and people that were like us and, but we were not doing well at reaching our own city. And so we suddenly found ourselves as a church for the first time in their history. And, uh, and in my ministry too, uh, found ourselves in this really odd, wow, we are one of those declining churches, you know, in Mm -hmm. the city, declining and declining quite rapidly. And so uh, it really began to necessitate then that if we're going to stay in the city, the Lord was going to have to show us how to function in a way that our city would want to go to heaven with us because they couldn't make it clearer that they weren't interested in doing it now. So that was what really began to bump us over to the need for that, that other, uh, that other path, that other, that other street that in the dark that, that my dream had suggested. And suddenly we needed to function, uh, in a very different way. And, and so it was at that time that I started to really remember uh, those dreams and remember that, you know, someday I'm going to get glory out of this. Well, this was becoming that someday. 
And but yet we were going to be functioning uh, by running in the dark on an unknown road. And uh, we weren't going to be where all the applauses were. And yet we were going to be running fast. And even though we had broken legs, because as a church, we had had three or four years now of really losing our confidence, as it were, and uh, causing everyone to really question everything. And we were all kind of running on broken legs over there. And yet I was able to give a strong sense of confidence to them that, hey, we might have had a broken few years here, but we are going to run again and it's going to start right now. And uh, just because we're going to do church different and get over on a uh, on a different path and run in the dark, we can run well over here. The Lord is on this road too. I know for a fact. I've seen him in a dream. I've seen this same road before, you know. And <laughs> so suddenly all of that just came flaring back. And uh, and there was a strong sense of courage in my own soul that had been laying there latently for, you know, six or seven years. If I can stop you for one second, Verlin. Not to not to jump ahead a little bit, but you know, as you're telling this story, I can't help but hearken back to some things that you said in your books, and you said when I, I got to see you in person. So many churches may be feeling exactly what you're feeling, but you mentioned in those meetings and and have in print that fifty three thousand people stop attending church weekly, and that. 80 churches are closing weekly and there's 50 pastors leaving a day. Yes. And since I uh, did that conference that you were at, that number of 80 churches closing a week is now up to 96. Oh boy. But yeah, 50 ministers a day leaving the ministry, most of them for burnout. That's more than their retirement rate can can even begin to explain. So when I, I heard you say those numbers and digested them, and I'm I'm hearing you talk and focusing on awe, God brought back to you that road you were down and gave you the confidence, you knowing that the glory goes to Him and you want to give Him that glory, and that's your that's your life mission, and that's what's feeding you. A lot of people could be looking at this and going, "That's overwhelming," just like your church did. That's so hard. There's so many things going against us. Look at the what the way the world's going. And like you said, our city doesn't even want us. Right. I, I'm excited to hear more now where you're going to take us, you know, as as I look at those kind of numbers. Well, I will say because our, our city didn't want us didn't mean they didn't want Jesus. Correct. They still wanted him. Pure Christianity was not the problem. Our version of churchianity was the problem. And somewhere in the midst of, uh, I mean, in a spiritual sense, I knew we were going to figure out how to run in the dark on busted legs. I had that promise planted in the deepest place of my soul uh, from years back. So I knew that as a church, we were going to figure out how to arise and run in the dark on, on busted legs. But in a practical sense, we had a lot of lessons to come to terms with. And one of them was just facing the fact that that we didn't have a theological problem in our conversation with Seattle. We had a sociological problem. Okay. Our way of doing church that worked so well for us did not fit their sociology. When we stopped trying to treat it as, wow, they're not interested in the gospel. And well, no, actually, they're not relating to our way of doing church this Sunday morning information, download, worship, and standing and raising our hands and loving the Lord, and then a good a good hard 
message from the word of God and teaching. And even though I felt we did that very well, mm -hmm. that, that was a sociology of sorts. I mean, it's only been around 500 years. That version of church is relatively young. We've acted as though we got it out of the Bible and we didn't. And uh, so there's nothing wrong with questioning that sociology of church, so to speak, especially beings we know who invented it and why. And at a time when Europe was completely Christianized, this kind of approach really works well, nor their family line for two to three generations deep have ever attended a church. Hmm. So there was a sociological misalignment that was very significant for them. And so we, we had to have the Lord take us by the hand and give us the courage, uh, you know, basically, hey, would you guys be willing to do church in a different way for a different people than you are? and do church in a way that worked for them uh, and their sociology, even though you might not like it. Would you be willing to do that? And that became a really significant question where we needed to see the presence of God in a very big way as a whole. Right. We needed to know at that point that God was really, in fact, asking us that. And it wasn't just meanderings that are coming out of the dismal despair of of declines yet another month, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, but we did become convinced that the Lord was asking us that, would you be willing to do church for a different people and in a different way that's true to their sociology and not yours? Because you, the way you do church, you liked your way into all of this one decision after another over 95 years that you liked the, your way into this kind of sanctuary and this kind of building and this kind of worship and this kind of preaching and, you all, you know, this, these were all human decisions and it created a certain sociology. But if I'm going to give you a new wine, would you be willing to put it in a new bottle? Or are you going to insist putting it in the old bottle that you guys already know and like, because you think that's better? You know, that's that whole parable really got really loud to us, the, the, the wine and whatnot. So we realized that the Lord was wanting to give us a new wine, i.e. a new, a new kind of people but we would have to be willing to put it in a new sociological bottle, a new way of doing church for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was, uh, that was a very interesting time for us as a whole group. I will say that when you're, when you're dealing with, with pretty significant change, you sure are alert for the voice of God at those times. Mm -hmm. When you're in the status quo, you're like the train going down the track. You're not as attentive. I mean, you you hope to be, you pray to be, you'd like to think you were, but you're not as attentive when you're just clicking down the track of of the uh, status quo. Right. But suddenly that stops working and you start going into decline and you can tell, wow, four or five years of this and we're going to be out of business, you know, <laughs> you're starting to face real truthful things like that. It's amazing how failure gets your ears attentive to God and so your true. eyes. I start to really look, boy, our church really, really learned that lesson. And uh, uh, so I, uh, I hope that we don't quickly lose it now that we are on that different road. After, and after 10 years, we've got a lot of confidence on this road. And we're highly effective on this road, even though we're running in the dark on broken legs. We, we know how to run in the dark on broken legs. And, and I'm kind of getting worried. Are we going to get back into that status quo thing to where it's just, mm -hmm. Hey, what today's about, you know, and we lose that attentiveness. We lose that, the, the ears that are crying for your interventions, Lord, you know, right. we, need, we need your interventions every day. And, 
you know, uh, we've got to take our keys and open up the doors in heaven so that you rush out and the, the kingdom breaks forth yet again day by day. If, if we're not doing that, then all we're doing is, is human kingdom stuff, and that doesn't ever add up to much. And, so how do you uh, see inspiration and keeping that reverence and keeping the glory of God for what you're doing and with the new wine that you're using, how do you, how do you see that being kind of put into people's lives or how can they keep that going in their own lives so that they don't fall into that trap? Cause that's typical of most of us, uh, you know, to forget and yeah. to fall into our normal thing. So what, what, what do you think there? Well, I, I really wish I had an answer that made me look a little better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at that, I'm at that way in the road where I tell the truth, uh, or else I, you know, uh, gloss over with some scripture or something. But, uh, truth be told, I think it was probably a year, year and a half ago. We were, we had already planted, I, I think eight or nine different dinner churches in the city all of which were profoundly effective. They were like multi-sites of our church, uh, and they were doing very well. We were already telling our story across the country and doing an awful lot in terms of day conferences. And, uh, and I could begin, I could see that we were already slipping into a status quo as our church. It was just like, well, we opened up another church. Okay, you know, just a little bit of a hand clap, and then back to, it was almost almost getting dull, our our uh, our effectiveness at reaching the lost and opening churches that would fill up with um, with unchurched and unreached people. I mean, our 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 our, expe- our expectation of that, we were just actually getting bored in it. I guess you could say almost. Mm. And uh, that's how already the status quo thing was coming on us. Um, and I I felt like the Lord began to speak to my wife and I. You guys need to deepen. You need to deepen. You've gotten good at this apostolic uh, evangelist role. You're bringing, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven as a result of what you've done that otherwise wouldn't have been there across the country. But, uh, but you guys really need to deepen. And that really pressed on us for quite a while. Quite frankly, I think I ignored it way longer than my wife did. She's, she's a little bit more of an honest heart that just hears the Lord for what he says. And uh, so she actually just kind of kept the pressure even on me and our own, our, 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 we get up every morning and open up our Bibles and turn on the fire and put on some coffee. And that's where we talk to the Lord. We talk to each other, but even that was almost perfunctory, you know, Mm -hmm. after 38 years of every morning, starting off with, you know, her, me and God (laughs) kind of a thing. And, um, but uh, that deepened thing really, really started to ache at us. We could see cracks in the foundation, even of our own church, our own ministry. It's like, how much more weight is this actually going to hold? You know, and right. we had two or three more churches to us, and the extra staff and all that needed. And I mean, the financial part, and it was like it was already getting cumbersome. And so, um. So, uh, so we said, we finally, I finally joined with her and said, Lord, we will deepen. Not totally sure what you mean by that, but we've followed you uh, into the fog before, and it's always come out quite beautiful and quite surprising. So we'll do it again and show us how to deepen. Well, really quickly, 
we really on the back end of that started to hear, all right, but not only you guys, you've got to make your whole church deepen. You guys have got to deepen. Your roots are that, that have carried you for a while in getting to this point are not going to sustain you beyond this point. And you're not even at the halfway point of the numbers of churches that you want to open to reach the city. You know, you're, you're barely a third of the way there. And, um, so, uh, so I, we actually took our, our, our weekend worship gathering and we moved it, uh, and we had already moved it to a Saturday night because we had three dinner churches functioning in different locations all on Sundays. And we'd moved our, our weekend gathering to a Saturday night after a dinner church that ha- happened at that time. Um, uh, and But we realized we needed to really convert that from just a, a time of coming and singing and me teaching for 30 minutes and, and, uh, and kind of what was the closest thing to a typical weekend gathering we had to really convert that to a call to prayer. Mm. And it was a time for us to get very serious about using the keys that the Lord had given us to continuously open up doors in heaven that we need for the rest of the week and, uh, and get very confident about that we fully expected our story to be stronger at 7 o'clock than it was at 6 o'clock because of what we did on those Saturday nights in that call, in that call to prayer. Hmm. So, um, so probably three months ago, we started uh, really converting that and helping everybody recognize this isn't just a come and get your spiritual fix for the weekend and then go help us at one of our dinner churches, whatever, throughout the week. It's, this is a time for us to significantly open doors in heaven um, and in which we expect uh, the Lord and the literally, literally the inbreaking kingdom of God to come flooding out because we got that we got those doors open and it affects extra healing, extra salvations, extra strength, ability, and finances, ability in our continued expanding story, and to just flat take us from a place of boredom back to a place of adventure in our own Christian personal Christian experiences, hmm. and. Um, so uh, we're about three or four months into that turn, and uh, and it 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 is it is kind of taking a hill, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, it, it was taking a pretty big hill to become a a pretty significant multi-site dinner church throughout an entire city uh, and even beyond. Uh, tell our story beyond that was a pretty big hill. But this is like I was just talking to our staff yesterday and said this is another hill that we're going to have to fight our way up. And uh, this is not, I mean, the, 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 uh, the yearnings for human comfort is always going to get in the way for what is needed for us to, to arise in the kind of boldness and the kind of prayer power that is going to be needed. Because we're going to have to pray the price to mm. forward from here. And uh, that's just going to take plain old-fashioned hard work and, um, and getting on our face before God and taking the keys that he's given us seriously that we fully anticipate to open doors that are going to matter this week in the uh, 11 different dinner church neighborhoods that we're in. And um, so uh, that was that that's sort of where we are. Um, I'm uh, I I will be very intrigued six months from now and a year from now as we Hmm. continue to climb this hill and really, really make Saturday nights a, a very powerful place where we 
literally download the plans of heaven that we then benefit from the whole rest of the week in all of our churches, all of our uh, dinner churches. And that's, uh, that's the steps that we have taken to restore and maintain a very strong sense of vibrancy and, and uh, really get in our eyes steadfastly uh, and with great determination uh, upon really our desperation for the Lord to do stuff for us yet another week. Or it's, or, it's just, or it's just holding ground. It's not taking ground. It's just holding ground. And we don't, we've, we've actually, we've been feel, felt called by the Lord to affect, affect our city in a way that's something that we'll never do if we're just holding ground. Uh, and right. In fact, uh, we we got to take ground and we have to pray with that kind of intensity, and that kind of strength. So, so it is my uh, belief that the Lord has called us to make these Saturday nights of that kind of power, of that kind of commitment, so that we all deepen and we stay deep. We go deep and we stay deep because we've got this weekly activity that is assuredly going to force us back into that, away from our comforts and back into that, uh, that depth and back into that, that commitment, if you will, pray, of praying the price. We've got to pray the price again. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's what's happening lately. Well, and I think, you know, that is, I, I asked you a tough question. What, you know, because we really can't get anybody to, you can't force anybody to do anything. But I think it's the steps we take and that can pull other people along, which is what you're saying, that really will hopefully feed that inspiration side of them as they see us doing those things that, you know, give glory to God and, and, you know, uh, helping people, as it says, without a vision, the people are are basically dead, right? Yeah. You're giving them, you're giving them a vision, but it does, it takes work, but you're also desperate for God to do something in that instance. And I think you've, you've got some really good keys there that, that just will work, like you said, to open doors in heaven for what you're doing. Uh, um, this is the kind of stuff that is caught. It's not taught. Exactly. Can so, only catch it. It's the deep calling to deep, you know, and uh, and and those that have that willingness and that capacity, they are arising. Mm. And uh, so uh, and maybe there are others that are just watching, but that's OK. You know, uh, there there is a strong sense of a lot of people showing up on Saturday nights and pulling out their keys or maybe <laughs> not a lot, but there's there's plenty, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. And, uh, and we are, we are, we are, we're main, the main thing is we have a weekly habit now whereby we have to do this and have to dust off any little barnacles of comfort orientation that have tried to stick to us throughout the week. And now there is that place where we've got to shake them off again and, uh, take, take ground again, because, uh, we've got another, we've got another week where we are absolutely dependent upon the inbreaking Lord and the inbreaking kingdom that pours specifically into our story. What he has apportioned for us, we got to open those doors to get them. Mm. Well, uh, a couple of things, Verlin, uh, that I think people would be interested in, maybe just a quick synopsis of the dinner church. Uh, you know, I know, I know that's probably asking a lot, but, but I think more for the people listening, what exactly have you done that's different uh, by the meaning of dinner church and, and what have you seen God do in that? Yeah. 
Well, the dinner church isn't so much what as when, um, because uh, throughout church history, uh, the times in which the church has been most potently effective with non-Judeo crowds, crowds of pagan, barbarian, Gentile, you list them from, uh, from the New Testament however you want, but uh, they were using the dinner table theology. Mm-hmm. For several hundred years, uh, the church was a dinner church. That was their sociology. They gathered around food. They brought the stranger and the poor and the widows and everybody to the table, and they talked about Jesus. And, uh, and in that way, uh, the, uh, which is what actually Jesus did. He did an awful lot of you know, healing by day and dinner with sinners by night. That was uh, probably the, one of the better ways to really understand what Jesus did with his time. Uh, and all the verses all fit into that uh, in, the, in the Gospels. But, and so the, the apostles picked that up and did the same thing, Book of Acts. And when Paul got the gospel ready for the Gentiles, he was, he was literally planting the retelling of the Jesus stories around tables and calling them a church and moving on, you know, getting mm-hmm. elders to bring the food and someone, to, uh, a pastor to raise up to retell the stories of Jesus, and, and he'd move on. And uh, so that, that, uh, that dinner church was really a very significant piece of history. And I had been studying it as a part of my, my grad work, and, uh, and, and that little nagging question of, would that— would that work today, you know, in a place like Seattle? Are you, this is a, a highly cosmopolitan city and uh, the, the undoubtedly the most secular uh, population in the country in terms of, of, uh, of worldview, uh, large amounts of, po- of the population holding that worldview. And uh, so anyway, we tampered with that uh, until finally we just, we couldn't tamper anymore. We had to just do it. And uh, so we, we actually did a test run in our own building, even though our building wasn't a, uh, in the best neighborhood, so to speak, for this. But we were shocked at what happened in our own building. Where did these people come from? These, these people are not people who would ever join us on Sunday. And even, hmm. after, they, even after they were there being a part of, of the, the teachings about the stories of Christ and the prayer and week after week, they still never joined us on Sunday because it's that sociological problem, you know. So yeah. Uh, then it came time to expand to another neighborhood, and this was a, another God experience, I guess you would say, because I there was this one neighborhood about 50 blocks south of our church campus, um, and every time I drove through it, I got this weird feeling. It just settled in on me. It almost felt like these rose-colored glasses came over my eyes. Everything would go into slow motion. There were some times that when I was driving through that neighborhood that I actually thought I was getting sick. But then six blocks later, well, okay, I guess that passed. (laughs) I wasn't sick after all. So finally, after five or six of these really strange things, I started to wonder if it wasn't a spiritual thing. Lord, are you trying to talk to me? So I remember pulling off. I was driving down this one time, and it just hit me very strongly. Um, And I pulled my Jeep off to the curb, and I just sat there. And I just out loud inside of my, 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 my Jeep, I said, Lord, what are you trying to talk to me? Is that what this is every time I come through here? And uh, and I just felt all of heaven just suddenly come into my my car. And uh, and it just yeah, look at notice those people right over there. See, they'd never attend your church, and and them right over there. Look at that, and then them right over there. And 
Then look right over here. And then look at, see, you notice how different this is? Look, look how many people, here it is, middle of the day. Look how many people are on these sidewalks. And, and take a look at the people themselves. Are they, do you even begin to understand those people? Are they, would you call them normal? Uh, hmm. You know, are they like the people you live in or they like the neighborhood you live in? So uh, all of that was just, I was, I was just having uh, layers of, like contact lenses peeled off of my eyes. And I was suddenly looking at these Seattleites through very different eyes and realizing how completely different people those social circles were. And, um, and there's a reason why they're not coming to our other church, you know? And so, um, so when we really begin to recognize this dinner church thing, uh, how that it, it literally still worked, and it was time to really try it in another location. I knew where to go. I'd already had two or three of these modern versions of a Macedonian call, you know, where the Lord just was just waving me into a particular place. So mm-hmm. my wife and I, rather than sending some staff down there, my wife and I decided we needed to really take the lead. And so we rented out the house that we owned in a nice North Seattle neighborhood. And we moved into an apartment down in this neighborhood where I'd had these Macedonian experiences like this and um we moved in in may in may um and april or may may i think and so i just literally started to treat that six blocks uh as though it was like the halls of my church i'd go down walk and coffee shops and restaurants and every excuse that we could have to get outside and walk up and down those sidewalks just meet people just say hi i didn't even tell them i was a pastor didn't tell them i was going to open up nothing like that it wasn't that direct it was literally Missiological walking, if you will, in which I felt like the Lord was right beside me, and mm. every time I'd go, and um, we started shopping for our dinners every single day. You know, just go to the walk down to the store. We had two or three grocery stores we could walk to, get what we need, come back and have for lunch, and come back and do it for dinner, and stay in that neighborhood as much as we could day by day. And uh, so then, in July, we opened up our dinner church on a Thursday night in a community space that was right there in the middle of that neighborhood. And uh, the very first night we had, I think we had 15, 17 people from our own congregation that we had like been talking to. Hey, would you help us plant another congregation, plant another church down here? And, and we have this one on Sunday. That's great. But could we, we could have another one down here and still be us, but different, different time and a multi-site kind of thing. Would you, you know? And so uh, there were, there were, I think that very first night, I think there were, uh, 14 or 15 of us, and we had two visitors that came in just on the basis of the signs. And then the next week there were uh, six, and the next week there were 14. And by the end of the year, the room was completely full. Um, and uh, we were just shocked at, uh, at how what little we were doing. I mean, we were providing a really nice full meal. We wanted the, you know, true to, in studying early church history, they used food to be a good metaphor for the gospel and abundance and generous and paid for by Christ and his people and all of that. So uh, so we picked that piece up. We studied a lot with Tertullian. He probably wrote the most about the historic dinner church or, you know, and his, he called them the, the agape feasts, but uh, where they locate and how they functioned and the kind of people they reached. And so we had a as, as an 1,800-year-old written template <laughs> to work hmm. with, and so we did that. Uh, picked every, all of those pieces up as best we could, tried to preach in the same way that they would preach back then with the best evidence that we had from 
from studying and whatnot, which were just the stories of Christ and the stories that Christ told. That's what they preached about. And they didn't have a a, a 66-volume Bible to preach out of. That was that wouldn't come for several hundred years, you know. And yeah. they had the life of Christ to preach. And Paul said, when I preach, I just preach Christ and Christ crucified, you know. And they took some he took some heat for that because he wouldn't get fancier. But he said, no, I just rely on the power of God and preach Christ and Christ crucified. So we just went back to that simple form of preaching. And um, uh, so anyway, the room started to fill up with, I mean, more people, more unchurched, uh, unreached people than I think our church had probably seen in 10, 15 years. Wow. It had been a long time since we'd seen so many people want mm-hmm. us. And we, we had to put a little sign out in the middle that said, you know, there's going to be a, a story about Christ and a prayer at the end for those that want to stay. And we quite frankly thought they'd all get up and leave, uh, but they didn't. Uh, they sat right there. They ate the food. They sat. They turned around and listened to the message. And when it was time to pray, man, they bowed their heads and tears would begin to roll and healings begin to happen. And individuals, after after a while, they started like calling me pastor and, and started referring to this as church. We didn't teach them any of that. They didn't even know that I was a pastor of another Sunday church somewhere. Wow. And they had knowledge of that. And uh but just on the basis of what was happening, and they were and they were trying to explain their own spiritual growth and what was happening in the room, they started to to do all that, hmm. um, and we we realized at that point that wow, it, Jesus isn't the problem. Jesus still plays loud and large, even in highly secularized streets as Seattle. Um, but that Sunday morning version of church, that talking box thing, that uh, that. Was that didn't do it for them? It was it, Christianity was fine. It was churchianity that they really didn't like. Yeah. And once they got once we got that part fixed, and we were in a in a sociology that they understood. Suddenly, game on for them to talk about Jesus and with people like us. And uh, so that uh, that caused us to wow. Okay, this entire banquet room is totally full. These people are completely locking into what we're doing. They're listening to the stories or letting us pray for them. They're already beginning to be, uh, demonstrate, you know, Christ-like development in their lives. And, uh, well, what about Tuesday night? You know, TV kind of lousy on Tuesday night. How about if we did another one in that neighborhood over there? And we got drawn into that. And then another neighborhood started to ask us, would you come bring one of your dinner things? We've got all kinds of people over here that that really lack family and lack community. And you guys seem to really bring that. And so, I mean, if that isn't a Macedonian call, I don't know what mm-hmm. is. When yes. neighbors start asking you to come and plant one of your deals there. And so anyway, that that's what caused us to then suddenly develop an understanding for that. Man, you've spread the gospel through all of Jerusalem. You know, we told you not to do it, but you spread it through all of Jerusalem. We realized once we understood the table, we understood how they did that. You know, and like, oh, they were going from like table to table, neighborhood to neighborhood. That's like, that's what's happening to us. Suddenly there were that verse and a lot of others began to really make sense that we never had uh, in its proper depth interpreted before uh, as we looked at the book of Acts and others. And so anyway, that's how it got started. And one thing and another and another. And it just uh, it slowly took over uh, what our church was to be. And we knew what our calling was. We needed to we needed to spread these uh, dinner table churches throughout the entire city, 
of Seattle. And so that's what we're still in the process of doing. Well, that's glory be to God. And, uh, you know, as I've seen you live and, and you had pe- other people there as well as videos and a Skype session with people that are doing this in other places around the country, that, that just says a lot about how the dinner church really is such an effective way to get out and touch the communities that, you know, wouldn't come to a normal church. Right. Right. Yeah. We've sure found that to be true. There is definitely a, a rebirth and a, a, there's a, there's a movement afoot that it's a movement of the spirit. Um, and in fact, individuals from different corners of the, of the country were feeling drawn into the dinner table theology without mm-hmm. ever comparing notes. And there came a point where we said, wow, yeah, how many do you have going now? And, wow, and how are you doing yours? And okay, you have a little more liturgy in yours. That's pretty cool and still working. And it's like, it's been a very fascinating discovery uh, of just how much the Lord has been talking to a lot of, uh, of other people about this. And then when we share our story, uh, the reports afterwards as they come up and say, man, I, I, the Lord has been really stirring me to like just do the food thing and I but I didn't know what to do with it and now I do and so uh, it truly is a, a movement of the spirit that is just fascinating to watch so Verland uh, to finish up on this you know I really appreciate especially your examples that you have making sure that we tune into God hear what he's saying and let him guide us and turn ourselves over to him uh, but you know as we as we close up, if I'm here and I'm listening to this, uh, I'm going to have things on my website in awe by Bruce.com of, of links to your website and other things along those lines. But what could I do if I'm hearing this and I'm going, wow, that, that feels like right where, where I am or where I'm at. And I'm wondering what to do. How do I keep track of this? How do I get involved? Where do I go for more insight? Well, the uh, dinnerchurch.com website is the first step, I think, for anyone, anyone, because there you're going to be able to get a hold of the books. I mean, in the last few years, I've ended up writing three books. I have another one in publishing now uh, that is associated with uh, prayer practices that are needed for those that are on the front lines of the gospel, because <laughs> I realized that the vast majority of my my uh, ministry was not on the front lines. It was on the supply line. <laughs> Didn't know that until now that I've been out on the front lines and note the difference. And it's a pretty <laughs> drastic difference and different different prayer is needed, actually, a different uh. prayer attitude even. But uh, so that's coming out in February. But all that stuff is available in um, in the, at the dinnerchurch.com as well as the different day conferences that are offered uh, all across the country. You can register for them there as well. And so that, that in a practical sense, um, that is uh, – uh, I think probably a first step as far as uh, discovering the dinner church part. But I think in a, uh, in a prayer sense, there is something, uh, or in just that personal revival, reviving sense. Uh, we, we have here in the last, uh, in the, in this app, in this uh, reformation era, we have been overly fascinated by the uh, power of teaching to bring about change. And uh, what we have under uh, meditated upon is the need for the praxis, which was very apostolic era. They understood that you've got to like make an adjustment in your schedule, in your 
calendar. It's like you you change a behavior and then your mind and heart will figure out what all it means. Whereas we've felt if you teach in the head, it'll drift down and it'll affect the heart and ultimately it'll affect the behaviors. We've had a very, you know, age of enlightenment uh, outline of what brings about human change and what brings about a reviving of us as people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very true in terms of our spirituality, in terms of our prayer, in terms of how much time are we dedicating to see God, you know, honestly see him. And uh, and so I would I would say to take a real good, significant look from a praxis point of view uh, in your, our schedules, in where we're doing church, when we're doing church, where are we putting those those true uh, call to prayer moments that will that will disturb us out of our uh, our commitment to comfort and force us back into that place where we're we're in the we're we're tucked in the place in the rock where where we can't look to the left we can't look to the right we can't look back we can't look down we can't look up those are all cocooned by by the cave all we can see is out the front of the cave and watch God walking by us hmm. that's all. That's and some, somehow we have to do something in our schedule uh, that that shakes us and forces us into that cave to where all we can see is God. Wow, that's great. Well, that's I think that's a good place to end, unless there's something else that you have to express or you want to say before we go. Well, there is one other thought. You know, the uh, the, uh, uh, the there was a time back in church history with the Celtic church that they would refer to the thin place. And um, one brother might see another, hey, brother, how long has it been since you've been to the thin place? And that other brother would answer, and he's silent on the street, you know. And what they meant by that, or sister, you know, I've been to the thin place lately. And what they meant by that is it's a, a place where uh, the veil that separates the man world from the God world gets so thin that you can actually see God, and you can see what He's doing. You can observe the Godhead uh, in their in their world, and yet it's intermeshed with ours, and we get to see them. Uh, and you know, we we all hope that in our devotional life and in our prayer and and times with the Lord, that they can become thin places. Truthfully, it hmm. probably only happens rarely. How is it that we can put ourselves in a place where we know the path? to the thin place and we walk it so often that it is very well worn and our our schedule is set up in a way that it forces us to walk it even when we don't and we get really good at attending that thin place and just seeing God and what he's doing and what he's thinking and revisit his power and the reality of the the God world and you know to, to for it to come alive to where we know it's as real as the man world it, I mean, his interventions and his his stuff that he's ready to do is just as real as this chair that I'm sitting in, the, the, the things that I see with my earthly eyes. And yet, for us to really know that to be true, we've got to be at a thin place to where we see it. Because, you know, our, our eyes show us what truth is. And mm. if our eyes are always in the practical world and we're not looking through that thin veil at the God world, we will, in a matter of hours, in a matter of days, become dulled into just how potent and powerful God really is in his world and wanting to enter, wanting to break in his in-breaking kingdom into our world, you know, hmm. 
we gotta we gotta put eyes on him a lot. We gotta get to that thin place a lot. And I would love to see that whole that that whole piece of church history come back to where that thin place conversation is in our 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 dialogue. And uh, and it's driving all of us back, knowing that someone's going to ask us, "How long has it been to th- you've been to the thin place?" And, well, <laughs> it's been a few days. I think I'm going to go tonight because I might come across you tomorrow. You're going to ask me again, and so uh, I, it's a very it's a very beautiful piece of Celtic church history that I think offers some tremendous um, insight for all of us. Wow, that is beautiful, and and. You know, you, you just didn't talking about that inspire me to think about myself, how I can get there. And then, you know, br- bringing that up more and seeing if, you know, through like these podcasts and people listening to you and what's going on in your life that we can help people get there. I, you know, hopefully in the future, you and I can have another sit down and talk about that and see maybe where things have gone in your life and what you're seeing about people talking about the thin place. You bet that that would be great. And uh, we have increased our thin place talks here. I will say that. And it's, Good it's a beautiful part, beautiful part uh, of our story. So, well, blessings, man. Thank you for including me in this. And I would look forward to talking with you again in the future. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Verlin. I appreciate you taking the time. You God bet, bless bro. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.